So that was a $6 million turnaround. Right. And I completely attribute that to mindset. This is Ezra Firestone from smartmarketer.com, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on the Productive Insights Podcast. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello, I'm Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com and the host of the Productive Insights Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Premium Productivity Course, which you can access by going to www.premiumproductivity.com. This course is a five-step framework that will free you from the daily grind and save you up to a day a week if you apply the principles correctly. It's all about focusing on the things that matter. It's built around the idea that productivity is not about getting more done in less time, but rather about doing less. It's about doing the right things at the right time in the right sequence. So head over to premiumproductivity.com and grab a very limited time founder member discount by using the code FEEDBACKNOVEMBER in the checkout page. And that's FEEDBACKNOVEMBER all in one word. This discount is available for a very limited time. And once it's gone, it's gone. So I hope you take it up. It's about a 60% discount off the original price and is specifically offered to founding members in exchange for their feedback. Once you give us your feedback after having purchased this course at a discount, we will even give you the next iteration of the course, which we will build off the back of your feedback at no additional cost to you. So once again, head over to premiumproductivity.com, use the discount code FEEDBACKNOVEMBER, or one word, and grab yourself a 60% discount on this course price for a very limited time. Now, this episode is the first part of a two-part series, which you can access at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 148. It is an episode with a very dear friend of mine who I speak to every fortnight. Today's guest has successfully turned around a business from being $3 million in the red to being $3 million in the black. That's a $6 million turnaround. And she shares all these secrets in the two parts of this two-part conversation. Now, in the first part, she talks about her backstory, which I think is very important. And it's an incredible story. It's about how her family was very successful. They had two private planes, and they went from a lot of wealth to almost being in poverty. So we'll hear all about that in this first part of this two-part series. And in the second part, she reveals how she used the lessons that she learned from her journey, applied them in her life after having identified some patterns. She turned those patterns around and used it to build a very successful business. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. You can download the show notes at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 148. And you will also find related episodes linked to in the show notes. I want to thank you once again for sharing the content that you've been sharing from Productive Insights and for your comments on social media. I really appreciate it. If you can think of somebody who will find this episode useful, please do share it with them. I would greatly appreciate that and I'm sure they would too. 
And now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, today's guest is on a mission to empower people to live an abundant life free from false beliefs. In this spirit, she wrote the book, The Abundance Code, How to Bust Seven Money Myths for a Rich Life Now, and has spearheaded The Abundance Code documentary in March 2016 to help people everywhere make a shift to the abundance mindset and seek joint solutions to the most pressing challenges facing our planet. Trained as an economist and statistician, where she received a scholarship from the Japanese Ministry of Education, Monbusho, and co-founded and ran an English school, Julie then went on to work at the Reserve Bank of Australia and then Macquarie Bank, also in Australia, and in 2001 co-founded the Trading Pursuits Group, a financial markets education company where she is the managing director. She's got over 20 years of experience in analyzing global economic trends and financial market conditions and is the co-author of the book Taming the Beasts, Secrets to Profit in Volatile Bull and Bear Markets. That's a mouthful. She studied various aspects of economics, statistics, finance, and has spent 15 years of postgraduate experience in the financial markets. She also happens to be a very dear friend of mine, and we chat on Skype very regularly. Now, although we have similar backgrounds, because I have a background in finance too, we actually end up speaking quite a lot about mindset. And uh, Julie's been helping me a lot with mindset lately, so uh, thank you. Now, she shared some really great insights with me, and I'd love to have her share these insights with you too, because I found them to be so valuable. So I'm delighted to welcome Julie Cairns from TradingPursuits.com. So great to have you on the show. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ash. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute honor. So, Julie, let's talk to our listeners about why you think mindset is so critical to making an impact on anything we do. You shared a very moving story when we first met about how you had this relationship with money and how it played out in your life and how you eventually resolved it when you addressed your mindset. So could you share that story with us? Sure. So I have to go back, if you don't mind, into yeah. my backstory because um, it all started in childhood, yeah. as it does with so many of us. You mm -hmm. know, most people take on their mental conditioning and their mental, their uh, subconscious belief set by the age of eight or ten. So if you want to, if you want to look at where the stuff, the the patterns that you're locked in came from, that's really where you have to go back to. So in my case. I actually had a very prosperous upbringing. Yep. Um, my, my parents were quite wealthy. My father was a very successful surgeon with a double specialty. Um, and they had invested very well in real estate. And so by the age of about 40, my parents had pretty much achieved, I think, most of the dreams that they had in life. They had a beautiful uh, architect design waterfront mansion that we were all living in. Um, they had a couple of airplanes. They were hobby pilots, so they owned wow. two airplanes. We used to fly everywhere uh, in our holidays in our own airplanes. Uh, they were collecting art, having fabulous 70s parties. Um, life was fantastic and, you know, really nothing to complain about, which makes the next stage of the unfolding story a little bit odd because uh, they both started to drink quite a bit at that point. And really, you know, once they had, had achieved that level of success is when their drinking really started to accelerate. And within a few years, uh, from the age of about eight for me, 
through to 11, the, the drinking got really, really intense. And when I was 11, my parents broke up. And within a couple of years, all of the money was somehow gone. I ended up living with my mother. She declared bankruptcy. And I went from this very privileged upbringing. And I mean, you know, my, bro- my brother was attending a very exclusive boarding school that Prince Andrew went to. My wow. sister and I were doing show jumping and dressage and, you know, <laughs> parading around in the, you know, in the riding habit with the, the red the red jacket and the black velvet lapels and, you know, it was this very sort of do all the things that rich people do kind of lifestyle that my parents seemed desperate to, to show the world this, this wonderful polished exterior. Mm. And then on the, on the inside, it was just totally crumbling for them and for our family. Just a quick question, Julie. It's interesting that you say that the alcoholism or the affinity for alcohol started to happen around the time they kind of, you know, got, that achieved everything. Yeah. It almost tells me that, you know, we all need to have a purpose, There's something going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll come back to, you know, what I think that is. Of course, it's all conjecture on my part. And, you know, they might have a completely different opinion about it. But the, the reality of what happened is that they broke up. All the money disappeared somewhere, not even sure where. My mother declared bankruptcy, and I went from this very privileged upbringing to mm. the shoe on the other foot. Or as I like to say, it was like getting you know a bad role in a game of snakes and ladders. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, it's all good, and then zoop, you're all the way down to the bottom of right. the socioeconomic ladder. Yeah, that's a good one, analogy, actually. Yeah. Um, so that was a shock, a total shock for me. And I think, you know, my, my mother declared bankruptcy when I was, uh, 12 or 13. And I think for a couple of years, I was just depressed. Um, and I, I basically started skipping school a lot, uh, hanging around with not a great crowd, smoking a lot of pot, just checking out in every way possible, drinking, Smoking cigarettes, you know, I started smoking when I was 13. If you were in school, I would have thought that you would have been relatively unaffected by the financial impact. So I'm just interested to understand a bit more about why that affected you so much. Or was it because your parents were kind of not really sheltering you from the situation because they too were suffering from it? Yeah, well, I mean, to say that the breakup was traumatic is is an understatement. All right. kinds of drama happened. Right, right. Crazy, right. crazy drama. And, you know, I actually think that I was probably in a state of PTSD shock. Oh, my goodness. For a while that then kind of evolved into just a general depression. I'm sorry to and hear that. Look, it's, it's what happened. And... Um, as you'll find out, I, I gained a lot of lessons from that experience. So I spent a couple of years just kind of feeling sorry for myself and yeah. not going to school, skipping school a lot, just not being engaged with my life. And then at about age 15, and I don't know what caused this, but I suddenly just went, you know what? I have experienced this life of wealth, extraordinary wealth, hmm. and I have experienced this life of the complete opposite. We had no money being assisted by welfare and never could have anything that I wanted, basically. Mm. Um, and I went, 
I think I like being wealthy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty nice way to be. And I thought, well, the only person who's going to figure this out for me is me. Right. So I went from basically not going to school. I think um, the year that I changed my mind about being engaged with my life, uh, in the first semester of that year, I had 56 days of absence from school. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And then I just went, okay, no, I, I actually have to do this. So then I started getting serious about my studies. After about a year, managed to um, convince my mother to let me move to Australia, which is where my father was living at the time. I, I grew up in Canada, so my mom lives in Canada. But your dad was Australian originally, wasn't he? Well, both my parents were Australian originally. They okay, right. immigrated to Canada when I was three months old. Okay. And so my father had gone back to Australia, and I went to live with him. And got very serious about my studies in the sort of last couple of years of high school. And then went to university in Australia. And back then, university in Australia was free. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was a big draw card for Well, me. it's still almost free. Yeah, it's not expensive, not definitely, compared to, compared to the States or even Canada. Okay. Um, so that was kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. Go to, go to university in Australia. And I studied finance, economics, statistics, mathematics, everything that I thought was what you should study in order to get rich. Mm-hmm. That was 100% my goal. Uh, I got a scholarship, a cadetship with the Reserve Bank, and then a scholarship with uh, the Japanese Ministry of Education. I went to Japan, did a Master's of Business Administration and Finance, learned Japanese, ran an English school while I was there, bought an English school and and ran that and then sold it and came back to Australia, worked in the banking industry, worked for the Reserve Bank, worked for Macquarie Bank in their funds management area and then started my own company with my business partner teaching people how to trade financial markets. Uh So I went from, you know, this not having anything really to going on a trajectory, I guess, career trajectory that made sense to me, that was the the standard proper trajectory to get money, make money, and be successful. And I was successful on that path. And I did build up a a significant amount of wealth. I I did what my parents did. I I invested in real estate. I had a business. I, you know, had good cash flow. And that was all very successful. Then I sort of went on my, my, if you call what happened in my childhood, roller coaster ride number one. <laughs> I, began, I began the downside of roller coaster ride number two. Oh, man. Uh, which is I invested in some things that I really didn't understand. Yeah. Um, my business partner and I went into uh, a chain of flower shops, mm-hmm. not just one, like five. <laughs> and uh, Indian takeaway restaurants. Okay. We had a couple of Indian takeaway restaurants, and we managed to lose most of our real estate wealth that we had accumulated, which, oh. you know, had been a significant amount of wealth. We had nearly 30 investment properties at one stage. Wow. So that was, that was a big lesson. Mm-hmm. 
we came out of that and went, all right, let's just focus on what we know, which is how to teach people how to trade and invest in the financial markets. Let's just focus on our business. Core competency. Right. So we built that up. Um, that was going well. And then 2008, global financial crisis. Of course. Yes. Happened. And for various reasons, we were close to bankruptcy um, again. And at that point, you know, you could call that roller coaster ride number three. At that point, I, I, I started to get the sense that there was a pattern. <laughs> well, fair <laughs> enough. It does take three rounds to see a right. pattern. I, I think that's yeah, fair. Was like, I think that's fair. Wait a minute. What, what, what <laughs> is going on here? And something, something I, I guess I had an epiphany. Something really good happened. But wait a second. Wait a second. The GFC wasn't a pattern to do with you, though. So can you really say well, that was part of the, the pattern? Reason, the reason we came unstuck in the GFC was about decisions that we'd made. Okay. Uh, we didn't actually lose money in the markets. Okay. Uh, we, we had a problem because we had a bunch of short-term debt that needed to be rolled over and no bank would lend to you during the GFC aftermath. Right. So it was to do with choices that we'd made about leveraging up. So okay. I can definitely track it back to... I see what you mean now. Okay, yes, got it. A, a high risk, higher than normal risk tolerance sure. that really kind of came unstuck. Gotcha. Um, so at any rate, that was an incredibly scary time for me. And a couple of other things were going on in my personal life that made me sit up and go, what, wait, what's going on? Um, one was that my daughter was really sick. Mm. She, she got whooping cough or something like that, basically, right. and got very, very ill. How and old was she then? She was four. Okay, yeah, that's pretty nasty when it happens at that age. Yeah, and then just as she was recovering from that, her appendix burst. Oh, boy. It burst. And so she, it burst, yeah. So she ended up in hospital on these really heavy-duty antibiotics uh, for a couple of weeks right. and was really touch and go, right. basically. Um, so that was one thing going on. Then also my, my partner was basically going through a bit of a gender crisis, and he eventually decided that he wanted to become a woman. Mm-hmm. So this was all going on in my personal life while my financial life was completely imploding. And <laughs> it was just like very intense. Right. And I had this intense feeling of terror, you know, like mm. in my gut. And I remember just one day checking in with that terror and going, I recognize this feeling. Mm. I remember this feeling. This yeah. is how I felt at 11, right. when my whole family life imploded, my parents were losing everything, you know, my personal relationships were completely, like, more stressful than, than you can imagine, really. And I went, wow, I wonder if I think this is how it's supposed to go. Right. I wonder if this is, you know, this is my normal. And if I wonder this is if what this you expect on some level. Right, right, exactly. These roller coaster rides I've been having with wealth in my personal life. Is that happening? Because I think that's how it 
works, how life mm. works. Um, and that one thought was the epiphany that I, that I needed. And that allowed me to go, okay, wait, what's going on in my internal belief system? Mm-hmm. And how can I change that? And I started really getting into the science of the subconscious mind. Um, I read a wonderful book someone had given me around that time called uh, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book that was written in 1963. It's kind of an old classic. Mm-hmm. And that set me on the path of going, all right, this might be a subconscious programming issue. You know, I can certainly point to lots of external circumstances through these three different roller coaster rides that explains each one of them individually. Okay. But put together, they represent a pattern. And is that a pattern that I want to have continue for the rest of my life? Because I was 40 at this stage. I was about the age my parents had been when they lost everything. That was another factor in recognizing where the pattern might have come from. Now, Julie, you just said something very important that I want to shine a light on because I tend to make this mistake. I always tend to attribute external events to things and don't necessarily recognize these as a reflection of my own thinking or mindset as I probably should, as often as I should. Now, that's not because I don't want to take responsibility for the things as much as because I feel that it's a bit too woo-woo to say, oh, I'm projecting these things. Whether or not there is a link between your mindset and those events that are happening, it doesn't hurt to just try and look at your mindset anyway, which is something I'm learning to do now. Yeah. Yeah. And look, any one event we can explain away. Two events with very similar sort of patterns. Hmm. Three, you really got to start going, hang on. Right. This is coming up again and again, maybe in a different form, but it's coming up again and again. It never hurts to look at your mindset and readdress it. Well, the thing that really kind of sealed the deal for me in terms of um, really acknowledging that this stuff has a powerful influence was because I was also at this at at the same time working with clients in our business. So we were teaching people how to trade financial markets. Yeah. And particularly when it comes to beliefs about money, if you want to bounce up or or push up against your beliefs about money, try trading. <laughs> yes, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, if you have a red hot button somewhere regarding your money beliefs, then trading is like pushing that button over and over and over again. Yeah. I've never been given to trading, I must confess. I'm much more of the Warren Buffett type of approach, you know, long-term investing and and value-based investing. So I don't really know much about trading, but I know enough to know that, yes, it will make you question your beliefs about money. Right. It will test your relationship. And it's very triggering. It's very triggering. And so... What I was experiencing, because uh, one of my jobs in the business was to help people who were kind of having trouble applying what it was that we were teaching to the real world markets. They were having trouble being successful with that application. And, you know, what I realized was, well, generally speaking, knowledge wasn't the issue. We had everybody had gone through the same training that we had provided. Right. And it it wasn't training that was difficult to comprehend. So everybody had the same knowledge that all out of our clients. 
And everybody was trading the same markets, mm -hmm. right? So those two things are constant. And some people were making it work, and then other people just couldn't make it work. And so part of my job was to, to help the people who were having trouble making it work. And right. what I found was the blockage, as I said, it wasn't knowledge and it wasn't the markets. It was an opportunity, in other words. Mm -hmm. It was that they were doing things to sabotage their own success. Okay. And it wasn't always the same thing, you know, but it was always something. Mm -hmm. There was always some, they'd deviate from the rules somehow, or, you know, they'd ignore some piece of evidence or, you know, something to sabotage their success. Mm -hmm. And when I started to dig a little bit with those people, what I came up against was their beliefs about money. Okay. That, that that was the thing, you know, some people, for example, believe that you have to work hard for your money. Okay. That's a very common belief. Right. And so if you're trading and it starts to come very easily, <laughs> I see. That right. totally triggers that belief. Right, 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 right. right. Or Another very common belief that would be triggered by trading often was the belief that money is easy come and then easy go. Right. So if you have a big inflow, then you do something to make sure you have a big outflow. You know, like you're, you know, you have a great trade, it goes well, you take your profits appropriately, awesome, high five. The very next one you do, you break all the rules. <laughs> now, here's a really interesting point. I just recently interviewed one of the assistant professors of psychiatry from Harvard. And it was about the power of unfocus and productivity. But an interesting point he made was that a lot of the time, by the time a thought has arrived at our conscious mind, our subconscious mind has already thought it. And we are often just becoming aware of a thought that we are already acting on. Yes, now, exactly. That is so interesting, isn't it? Because we think right. that oh, I didn't think it, so it couldn't have happened. But yeah, right. actually, you might be thinking it at a subconscious level. You just yeah. haven't registered it consciously, but you're yeah. still behaving on that, on that belief. 100%. I mean, the analogy I, I use for that is like, imagine you have a, a glass table yeah. and you have like a metal figurine on top of the table right. and you have a powerful magnet underneath the table, right? The magnet is your subconscious mind. Right. The figurine is your conscious mind, right? right. And so you move the magnet left, yeah. right? That's your subconscious mind. You're already moving left. Yeah. What your conscious mind goes is, hey, I think it would be a good idea to go left because of A, B, and C reasons. That's a but great analogy. But you're already analogy. going left. Yeah. So your conscious mind is using you're confirmation bias. what you're already doing. Yeah, your, your conscious mind is just rationalizing what your subconscious That's really interesting. And, and that there might establish a more concrete link with our subconscious minds and external events because maybe we are influencing events which we perceive as external events but are actually just coming from our actions. Well, you know, we're working in an incredibly complex system, right? And there are millions of decisions we make every day. Yeah. So tracking, you know, an event outcome back to the one million decisions that got you to that Right. place on your on your decision tree yeah is impossible right 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 it's impossible so uncovering you know 
or verifying that it's subconscious sabotage is actually quite difficult, hmm. you know. But when you have a pattern, <laughs> that's yeah. a big clue. That's a big it's clue. It's a big, big clue. Um, and the pattern can just be something like, I've been trying really hard and everything I do, I'm just frustrated at every turn. You know, it's just not working out and I can't figure out why stuff doesn't work out for me. When I look at, you know, my friend and it just, everything falls into place for them and they find it so easy. And for me, it's always difficult and frustrating and hard. What's that? Well, it's probably a belief. Okay. It's probably a belief. So, okay. So let me just go back to my story for a second. Sure. So 2008, I have this epiphany. Um, everything's falling apart in my personal life. Everything's falling apart in my financial life. And I just have this big aha moment and I go, right, it is time for me to get into my subconscious and rewrite some of this code. And so I start doing that. You know, as I said, I, I read the book, um, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. I read voraciously on the topic. There's, there's a whole bunch of resources once you, once you get onto this idea. Okay. And I started reprogramming my subconscious. And what ended up happening was within four years, and this is the four years following the global financial crisis, so it wasn't exactly a boom time <laughs> economically. Um, our company went from being over $3 million in debt, with that debt kind of basically due now, <laughs> right. to debt-free with $3 million of cash in the bank. So that was a $6 nice. million dollar turnaround in four years. Right. And I completely attribute that to mindset. Wow. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about the how then. How did you take it? from the three million in debt to three million in the black. Can you break down a process for our listeners? Sure. I mean, there were lots of things to it. Hey, it's Ash Roy here. We'll leave the conversation there and close off this first part of this two-part series at that point because it really nicely rounds off the backstory. We've set the scene. We've seen how Julie went through some significant change in her life on a few occasions and started to detect patterns. In the second part of this two-part conversation, which will be available at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 149, we will learn how Julie actually used these patterns that she identified to completely transform her mindset and turn it into a $6 million turnaround. So we're furiously working on getting part two of this two-part conversation edited, and we'll get it to you as soon as we can. But in the meantime, we didn't want to hold back this awesome first part from you. So please do share it with your friends or anybody else who you think would benefit from it. And here's to developing and executing on an awesome mindset for the rest of 2017 and here's to you having an awesome 2018. See you in part two. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 